All right, what's going on, everybody? So, this is Weapon Wheel Podcast, episode one hundred and fifty, uh, and this one is going to be an in- a developer interview with the lead game designer from uh, working on Dying Light Two from Techland Games, uh, Timon Smektala. I got that right? Yeah, cool. That was okay. Hi guys, my name is Timon Smektala, and I, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast and be able to talk to you. So, yeah, just once again, just want to say, you know, thank you for, you know, making the time um, for this interview. I know you're probably really busy while working on Dying Light 2, but I definitely appreciate it. Of course, the work never stops, but it's, it's, as I said, it's a pleasure. It's an opportunity for us to explain even more because there's a lot to explain. And uh, I hope we'll we'll get some questions and you will get a lot of answers that... uh, will excite people and will get them to understand what Dying Light 2 is even better. Okay, cool. Um, Before we actually get into the game, um, I'm always curious about what developers themselves play. Are are there any other games that you play um, in your spare time when you're not working on Dying Light 2? Of course. Like The thing is that if you work in a, especially if you work in a, well, there are a lot of, ways to approach this but uh, first of all we are all gamers so we play the games that interest us of course being a game designer working in game dev industry kind of spoils you so you never look at the games as a let's say a regular gamer would you always try to analyze them you're always looking at things that perhaps gamers aren't supposed to look at for example what's the um, what's the frequency of meeting enemies what's the i don't know uh drop rates and stuff like that I think a lot of gamers, they don't analyze that. They just play. And if you work at games at, in game industry, it's kind of hard for you to just play the game. You always analyze what's going on in it. And uh, so as gamers, we play the games that interest, interest us. But of course, if you work, especially in the AAA space, you have to be, you have to be constantly looking at, at other games, at other big titles to see how they are progressing, the genre, the, the medium. And uh, so, of course, we need to play a lot of open world games, a lot of post-apocalyptic games, stuff like that. Okay. Can you name any specifically? Well, the, today I will, I'll be playing, for example, today I'll be playing Far Cry 5. There's a new expansion uh, which came out, I think, on Tuesday. Okay. The one that, that takes place on Mars. And I want to see how they uh, took the Far Cry 5 formula, Far Cry formula, and how they applied it to a, a completely different fantasy, which is exploration of Mars and fighting with aliens. That's, kind of, that's, that's what I want to look at, and that's what interests me in that expansion. Part. Okay. Um, so... As far as, uh, so I, I, I teased my audience a little bit. I gave them hints as to who the developer was I was going to be uh, interviewing. Um, and what I did was I used the, the, the Easter eggs that were in the original Dying Light to give them hints. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I was a big fan of the first game. Um, and, you know, it was like the, the Mario Easter egg, The Last of Us clicker. Uh, and it, there, was a, there was a few other ones, like Plants vs. Zombies. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, just with the Easter eggs, I guess I, I've always been curious, like who exactly is it in the in the developer teams that comes up with the Easter eggs and puts them in the game? Is it just like a collective thought or how does that go? So it's hard for me to say how it works in different companies and in different projects, but how it went in Dying Light 1 was that um, as you approach uh, completing the game, there's a huge amount of work you have to do and it puts a lot of pressure on people. And of course, the, the time is ticking, you want to keep to deadlines. So 
people are really uh, they are really exhausted by doing the usual stuff. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we decided, okay, guys, you know what? We still have some time to spare. So let's put aside all of your current work, current work, and we will give you two or three days to come up with any Easter eggs that you want. And we got a list; like everyone was able to propose something. And uh, all of the level designers, all of the designers, all of the narrative designers, they all had some ideas they wanted to execute. And we gave them three days to do that. And basically what you see in the game is, is work of those people. Like each one of those Easter eggs is, is custom made by one of the person that, that invented it. In some cases, mm. someone had an idea, wasn't able to implement it because, for example, he was an audio guy and this it required some some um, uh, level design work. So either we, as, as as let's say project leads, we connected those people, or to be honest, they connected themselves. So there was an audio guy. He talked to his friend, the level designer, and they came up they came up with an idea for an Easter egg, and they were able to to introduce it to the game. Of course, we had to see if there's, for example, if we don't break any copyrights, if there's. Mm-hmm. Something that that's not supposed to go into into the game because of, of legal reasons or some other reasons, uh, but I th- and I think that's why the Easter eggs from the first game worked out so well because all of those things were uh, basically a, a fruit of love, an idea that that someone from on the team came up with, and um, that could be that could be uh, that got people excited and they. It gave them new energy, new strength to continue the project. So, 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 so looking at that, at this from from this point, it was a great idea, and I think we will do something similar um, uh, in the future with future projects. Almost like a little game game jam for Easter eggs. Right. Yeah, that was that. It was real fun finding the Easter eggs. Oh, yeah, there was also like the Last of Us clicker in there too. I thought I thought all of those was, re- was really cool. Um, so getting a, into a little bit more um, detail about the game. Um, Let's talk about the the parkour, which is like a, a main you know me- mechanic uh, in, in Dying Light. It's what really separated, uh, made the game stand out. Uh, can you just give some general like improvements um, on how uh, on what you're doing to make the parkour better in in the sequel? So I will keep this quite general because parkour is one of the things we want to explain further down the line. But uh, what I can say is that. Um, of course, parkour is a pillar, is the gameplay pillar of Dying Light. Dying Light has three gameplay pillars, the parkour uh, movement, the first-person many combat, and the night cycle. And in Dying Light 2, we are adding a new pillar, which is the choices and consequences. But parkour is basically an essential part of, of, of Dying Light. And of course, we put a lot of focus into, into improving this even more in this game. To be honest, we it's not like we improved what we had in the first game. We did almost the whole, the whole code for parkour anew. So it's basically... Us, based on the experience we got from the first game, but all of the code, all of the animations, all of the um, algorithms that govern how it works are written anew. And uh, one of the things we wanted to, to, to achieve with Dying Light 2, and I think we will achieve that, is that we wanted to create a, a, an ultimate parkour fantasy. If you dream, if you think about being that guy that runs to the um, city landscape and does a lot of crazy stuff and is able to really reach that level of flow where you just zip through the city. We want to give you that. So, um, um, so we doubled the number of parkour moves. We have put a lot of effort into new animation, into even smaller things like your self shadow. Now, when you see that your your character casts shadow on the ground, 
that makes you more grounded in this world and that makes you believe even more that you are this person that's, that, that's doing this parkour stuff. And the other thing that we wanted to do is to um, put more game into parkour. So in the first game, basically, you could learn the basic move, which was jump and climb, and you were able to complete the whole game just using this one move over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And in this game, the environment will change and you will have to adapt to the environment. And of course, you can still play using the, the one move that you learn at the start. And if you want, you can just keep doing this. And this will still allow you to finish the game. But uh, uh, as you play the game and as you learn the new moves and as you learn new skills, you will see that there are places which you can use those new skills on to get more effective, to reach someplace faster. And then you start looking at the city completely differently because now you see that's a chimney that you can use to hop on using this move. And then you see there is a billboard which you can use to wall run and perhaps gain even more seconds. So okay. now we want to create a game where you can go from, from point A to point B, let's say in 50 seconds. But if you are a skilled player and if you progress your character, you can reach that place in 40 seconds. And then if you are a really skilled player and you really start understanding how the environment works and how your skills support that environment, then you will be able to reach this place in another 30 seconds. So still, we want to keep the fluidity of movement, the, the easiness of being able to feel like a parkour guy. But then we, want, we also want to create a space for guys that want to specialize in it and want to learn the system and want to really become masters of it. So basically, that's the, that's the rule of easy to learn and hard to master. These are my parkour things here. Right. Okay. Um, with uh, designing the parkour, uh, did you use mocap and like maybe professional parkour artists? Uh -huh. I think there will be some dev diaries that 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 okay. explain our approach to this. But of course, we are using mocap for a lot of things for for combat, for zombies, for the infected, and for parkour as well. Okay. All right. Cool. That sounds really good. Um, I I have a question about side quests. Um, now. I think something that plagues, uh, uh, you know, games sometimes is, are uh, uninspiring side quests, right? I really like the side quests in the, the, the original, um, you know, Dying Light game. Um, what exactly is, I guess, the challenge in making a, in designing a good side quest and making it more than just a fetch quest? Go, go get something and, and bring it back. Like, it seems that is something that across the industry is a big challenge for developers is making a, a side quest just as good or even better than a main quest. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I can say about this is that uh, when we approach our quests, our missions, we don't really think about is this a, is, is this a side quest, is this mm -hmm. a, a main main story quest. Uh, and especially in the second game where it's completely non-linear, where basically it's, it's even hard to say what's, side, what's a side quest and what's, what adds to the overall narrative arc, because everything adds something to the overall narrative and to your understanding of this world. So first we have to approach side quest as not side, something on the side, as as the mind quest. Basically, you have to look at each quest in your game uh, with, with equal focus and with, with equal um, uh, willingness to create something special when you work on this. Of course, you can say if there's a story quest, especially the first one or the last one or something, really like a breakthrough in the story, you want to put more resources into it to create, I don't know, a better cutscene for it or maybe a very specific, unique location that supports the story. But that's really not that as important as the other thing I want to 
to talk about this. For me, each quest, each mission in the game should have some kind of a hook that that makes it different, that keeps you engaged in it. So, this, so engaged in it. So this can be a, a story hook, some interesting question that the, that the quest asks you, or maybe some uh, some interesting character that you meet who who's visibly different, who's unlike any other person you have you have uh, you have uh, met in the game, this game or any other game. Mm-hmm. The other hook can also come from the from the gameplay side. So perhaps there's some 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 I don't know. For example, there are parkour challenges in your game, but this quest asks you to complete a parkour challenge challenge during the night, and that's the that's the unique gameplay hook that makes this 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 quest different. Mm-hmm. For me personally, if I think about side quests and the side quests I really like is is other uh, side quests that change something in the formula of the game. The hook, uh, the, the hook I'm referring to is an idea, uh, a design that puts gameplay mechanics in a different context. So, for example, I remember a quest from, I think that was uh, from Oblivion, where you were exploring the insides of a picture, of a painting. Mm. And the hook in this quest was, uh, basically, it was, it was Oblivion. You were exploring the area, you were fighting with enemies, you were doing all of the things you do in Oblivion, but the hook was it, it, it changed the visuals so they looked like you are inside a painting. Right. And that's what you remember, that's something memorable. So each quest should have something memorable, either on the narrative side or on the gameplay side. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the, the other aspect of Dying Light that really sets it apart, the day and night cycles, um, particularly when the the infected um, come out and are extremely dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of people chose to play the game, you know, at night because that was obviously the bigger challenge and everything like that. So what's uh, what's different about um, particularly the uh, the night cycle when the infected are out mm-hmm. this time around? That's a hard question for me to answer because we are not talking that much about the night part of the game as, uh, at this point. But we like there are some bits that we reveal, we have revealed already. For example, the E3 demo, E3 presentation that we had for journalists uh, was a presentation that took place only during the day. And that was important for us because we wanted to show one of the rules of the world that we are creating in Dying Light 2. And the rule is the day is for human and the night is for the infected. So it's a little bit different than in the first game, where in the first game, when you ventured out outside from the, from the safe house during the day, what, what you encountered was mostly zombies. Mostly infected. In the second game, it's slightly different. You encounter mostly humans. You interact with humans. And then, of course, there are some infected in some areas, um, in some certain parts of the city, or they hide inside buildings. Because in our game, the, the infected, in the second game, the infected, they hide inside buildings during the day, and they come out at night. And when they come out at night, uh, there are literally hordes of them. We have increased the numbers, number of, of, of uh, the infected you can see on the, on the streets. And we also give you a lot of new tools to play with their senses. And we want the night part to be you know, more systemic than, than, than in the first game, where um, if, you, if you analyze the gameplay of the first game, you will see that there was only one valid strategy for you to play the game. So you tried to keep quiet, and then when, when they saw you, you were running to the safe house. Now we want to give you more ways to, to handle the situation when you are being spotted, 
So you don't have to run to, to, to an icon on the map. And we also want to give you more, more ways to play with the, with, with, with the senses of, of um, being infected. So you not only can hide behind their backs, now you can do something to move them to, to some place or maybe do something that will keep them occupied in the other part of the city or on the other street. And now this will allow you to, to, to explore uh, some other place. Okay, okay. So, um, moving on uh, for the moment to the visuals of the game. So, uh, you're using a new engine with Dying Light 2, right? Uh, so, what visual improvements does this uh, new engine afford you with, over the first game? Uh, of course, there's a lot of technical stuff that mm-hmm. a technical person would explain, explain better. I'm not a technical person, unfortunately, but what I can tell you is that um, it, gives, it gives us two most important things. The first one is... We are able to create worlds which are which are way bigger than than everything we had in the first game. So if you look at the map of the second game and you compare it to the first game, you will you will you will realize that the new game is four times as big as all of the maps from the first game combined. So that's one of the benefits. And the other thing is that uh, uh, as tech club, we made a decision to focus on games that present gameplay from the first person perspective, from the perspective of the player. And um, games that need those open worlds, which are extremely immersive. So for us, it's very important to have high fidelity scene where you look at the street, you look at the building, you look at what's at an interior of a building, and you see plenty of objects, plenty of things that really ground you in that place, that really immerse you, that this is something real. And um, so, on the general level, those are the two most important improvements of, of, of the new engine, which is called City Engine. The scale of the city and the graphical fidelity of, of, of each particular place that you're looking at. And of course, there are a lot of, as I said, technical tweaks. I don't want to go into details because I may, I may make some mistakes. As I said, I'm not a technical person. And we will explain a lot more about CNG in the future. So, so if someone is really that, 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 that interested in the, in the tech side of it, if someone is a, is a, is a, is a nerd when it comes to that, you'll get better information from us as, as we move along with the explaining of the game. Okay. One more question, uh, a little bit on the technical side. Um, I believe I read an article uh, that stated um, that you all are specifically, I guess, on the console side, because on the PC side, it has more freedom, um, that you're prioritizing the 60 frames over the 4K. And, you know, in today, you know, the, the whole 4K thing is being chased. Uh, it, it's it's in all the marketing. Um, but all you all don't care so much about the 4K over the 60. 60 is definitely a priority. Can you explain, I mean... Should be well, obvious, but that's that's very easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Dying Light is a game where fluidity of movement is the most important thing. So we are looking at fluidity as the most important aspect of it. And the other thing is that you can you, we are we believe that with our new engine and with the fidelity of graphics and the number of objects you, you see on the screen with, with within each given scene, it's not that important to be able to deliver 4K. Because the graphics are, are, are astonishing on their own right, even in a, in a lower resolution. But as I said, this is us targeting those, those, those things, and perhaps we will be able to do some breakthroughs, and maybe we'll be able to deliver even more. You know, you know, we still have some time to optimize the game, we still have some time to work on it. And uh, as I remember from, the, from my experience on Dying Light 1, 
the biggest gains in the in the in the frames per second and in resolution were made at the at the last stage of the production and basically in the, in the optimization of the game and um, um, how fluid it is, how 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 well it works. All the the biggest achievements we did at the end of it because the content was locked. We knew what we had to deal with, and then our tech magicians they just sat on it and they were able to 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 improve the the optimization of the game. Okay, um, going back to the to the first game a little bit, right when it was released. Um, I I still I think the game you know gradually got a slow burn. Some people I I, I bought it day one and just a few hours into the game and I, I was thinking like this this game is 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 amazing. But I feel like it was still underrated when it came out. It didn't get the immediate attention I felt it deserved, and I felt like the the critics it got a little bit mixed reviews from the critics. Did that um, yes. affect the studio's thoughts at all? Did it bother? You? What were your thoughts on like I guess the mixed reception, but I guess the slow burn and like all the um all the players who embraced the game well of course if you if you create something you want you want this thing to be received as 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 well as possible but uh uh so of course you are waiting for what we were waiting for the reviews and we were reading all of them with, with great focus and we're trying to understand why some people didn't like the game as much as we hoped but uh to be honest, uh, I think that let's say the morality, the 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 feeling at the studio was was great, starting from the release of the game. Because from the release of the of the game, from day one, we started receiving a lot of feedback from community, from the players that were enjoying the game and they really liked it. And they would like each day we got a lot of emails, a lot of forum posts, a lot of different different forms of expression that people really like the game and uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that 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 what kept us satisfied and we knew that we have a game that, that people like we knew that we have a game that that people look at the same way we looked at it and uh, and I think that also started the thing that we did with Dying Light is uh, for Dying Light for this IP the community is extremely important because of that because the gamers were the people that that realized from the start that this is a special game and then we started supporting them the original plan for dlcs consisted of only i think three or four releases but we did those four releases very quickly interjecting between those releases we added a lot of additional content to the game and now um and last year we have announced the 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 campaign which we call the 10 in 12 which meant that we we promised gamers, we promised our community that they will get 10 DLCs, 10 content drops from the game within the last 12 months, which they did. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the cool thing is that it actually worked because now we have a community that supports us a lot, that uh, gives us ideas and gives us inspiration for the new game. And I think the more important, like equally important, but a very interesting bit of information is that Three years after the release, Dying Light is still being played by half a million players each week. So that's an astonishing number if you look at when the game was released and how many things did, were released as well over those three years and how many things changed in the games industry over those three years. And still half a million players log on to our servers each week to play the game. So that's, that's, that's really something that's giving us confidence and giving, giving us strength to continue working on the O2. 
Yeah, that, that, that's really great and impressive. You were able to, you know, just keep the fan base around because honestly, uh, what I expected and because um, you did this at a time a little bit before the trend of, I guess, uh, supporting your games um, rather than releasing a sequel uh-huh. uh, immediately. So I was surprised. I was like, OK, this, you know, the game came out. It was 2015. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe it was. I was like, oh, yeah, sequel is going to be out about 2017. But y'all yeah. just kept on supporting the game with the DLC content. And I was like, I was impressed. Like it was, it was a definitely a, a smart move. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and well, you said that it was a smart move and perhaps it was a smart move. If you look at this from a, from a, like a inside, but the thing is that it was very organic for us. It is something that just came along us with the success of the game, with the, with the conversation we started having with our community. This wasn't planned, but we realized this is something we want to do because we want to, to 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 support the people and say thanks to the people that supported us from the start that gave us the the confidence at the start of the release of the game as you said that the, the reviews were they weren't bad reviews we like we I don't think we got a, a, a review which was below seven uh, but um, generally we expected the the media to 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 acknowledge 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 what we did hmm. and that. Acknowledgement came from uh, from the gamers, so we wanted to say thanks to those guys, and we started supporting them. And then one idea led to another. So we uh, we said, okay, so we can give those guys this other feature, and they they keep asking us about something other. And we said, okay, that's quite easy for us to do. So why not give them this feature? And that that started developing. And now, as I said, three years after the release, half a million players still play Dying Light, and I hope they will stick with us and they will uh, keep playing the game when, uh, until the next it comes out okay cool uh let's talk about the crafting system a little bit so um pretty much how the first game worked you found different items uh depending on you know i guess uh the rarity it's been a while since i played the rarity you know you can combine them and you know create really powerful uh melee weapons for the most part uh anything new information we should know about the crafting crafting system a lot but I'm not able to, to, to reveal this right now. What I can say is that the crafting system has been changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we listened to feedback from gamers. So I think all of the changes that we did are changes that are based on that feedback. So mm-hmm. I personally, I believe that we have improved the system and we gave players more freedom to work on items they're using and weapons they're using. Mm-hmm. And we also solved some problems, some, some of the things that people did like about crafting in the first game. Just a comment about like what what I liked about um you know the the first game is the the obvious focus was melee combat right um and parkour combat and everything like that you had firearms in there but mm-hmm. I never felt even though I had the assault rifle had the pistol I never once felt like the firearms are supposed to be the primary way uh-huh. of, uh, of taking on uh, any any enemies so um you know I just felt like that was a really uh. uh really good balance that you that you all created and keeping the focus on melee. Oh, thank you for that. And uh, I, I mentioned before that uh, Dying Light was built on three pillars. And actually, first-person melee combat mm-hmm. was the second pillar of the game, the gameplay pillar that we have built the game upon. So that was a very conscious decision not to create another FPS, not, not to create another first-person shooter. It was an, our idea to create a game based on melee combat presented from first-person pers- perspective. And uh, uh, we keeping is we keeping this the same way in the second game. And um, actually, it, it's even 
fit, it's uh, even more fitting in the second game because in Dying Light 2 we are presenting a universe which is um, quite unique because we, we, we say that universe, this game world is uh, is something which we call the modern dark ages. Mm. And so, so guys, imagine that the civilization has been gone because of the apocalypse, because of the of the infection. And now the humanity has gone back to the dark ages. But of course, everything you see outside, the buildings, the, 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 mater- the materials you're using to create stuff is modern. So this is a very interesting dynamic for us where the society, the new society that we present in the game is based on medieval rules, dark ages rules. But then they live in buildings which are modern, uh, then they and they're using, um, uh, of course, they're using uh, the many weapons as medieval times because they're not able to produce anything that's they don't able to produce new firearms. But they are creating those medieval weapons uh, using modern materials. So that's a very interesting way for us to to create a, a world that's unique visually and also that's unique uh, in terms of how we can. Um, proceed with the narrative because now you get to experience things like uh, all of the things that you expect from uh, medieval times like intrigue, like betrayals, like uh, fight for power, almost like a game of thrones types of things in a, in a let's say zombie post-apocalyptic context. So that's very interesting for us and that's something we want to explore. Okay, let's get into the story. Um, so uh, I think the biggest thing y'all talked about um, is who you brought on, which who is uh, Chris Avalon, um, who worked on the, the narrative uh, for Vegas, Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic. So mm-hmm. basically, all of them. Like, if, if if you ask a gamer uh, what's the best non-linear game they played, they will. I think they will mention at least one game created by Chris Avalon. Okay. Um, so you just brought him on to increase, increase, you know, the uh, I guess the story webs and the bridges and everything like that, and just improve upon the, the, the story aspect of of the of the whole game of with course. his experience. Yeah, so that's something we. So that was one of the of the assumptions, one of the things we wanted to do with the second game. We wanted to improve the narrative of the, of, of, of Dying Light. Uh, we we thought that. If we add really kick-ass narrative to the to, to the gameplay that we have, this will be something that will really create a, a very special type of game. And uh, we started talking with Chris because we like what he does with non-linear narratives, with games that uh, allow players to express themselves through narrative. And um, uh, he got interested in the project. We realized that there is an opportunity to work with him, and he shared a lot of his experience. Um, uh, from creating those non-linear games, and we have also beefed up our own. So Chris allowed, uh, Chris helped us to create the lore of the world. He uh, helped us to create basically the, the rules of it, the lore, the rules of the world. The world itself is is created with us and Chris together. And then we started working on specific quests, specific missions. That's also something that Chris helps 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 us. But uh, we have also beefed up our own internal team of writers. So now it's about three times as big as as as, as the team from the first game. And uh, we are fortunate enough to work with people that previously worked on Witcher Three. Now they are part of our Techland mm. board. So, so some people uh, involved in quests like Bloody Barrel Questline are also helping us with uh, with uh, with Dying Light. So I think we are in a very good place where we have Chris Avalon, the guru um, of the master of non-linear storytelling, and then we have writers, writers that are experienced from um, f- 
from uh, Dying Light, Dying Light the following, Witcher 3 and some other games. So this is a very good thing that creates very, very interesting stories, very interesting side quests, very interesting uh, uh, bits and, and, and pieces you can interact with on the narrative side. Okay. Um, a little bit more detail about the story. Uh, time, setting, protagonist, anything you could tell us about that when, uh, when this happens? Not much because it's one of the bits that we keep for later. But uh, the game takes place about 15 years after the break, uh, after the fall, after the fall, after the after the apocalypse, after after the start of the infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes place in a fictional European city, and so the setting is different than in the first game. And um, you play the role of a survivor that enters a city, which probably is the last human settlement still fighting to survive. And you realize that you have found something there. And then you start looking, then you start asking questions about where that thing can be. And that that reveals a lot of a lot of bad, rotten things that are happening in the city. And um, you have and how you interact with those things, how you approach them creates and shapes the overall story of the game. And I think that's all I can tell at this point, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But of course we will reveal more in the future. Okay. Uh, choices. You can make um, some choices in this game and assuming that they uh, do um, affect the story. Um, Can you expand a little bit about that? Uh, So uh, what we're doing with this game is that um, people are used to games where you make choices and and the narrative branches to to, to, uh, outcome A and outcome, outcome B and they choose between outcome A and outcome B. What we are doing right now is in Dying Light 2 is that it works a little bit different. Uh, how it works is that, um, first of all, it's not about branching stories, about basically a matrix of things where you make decisions and they impact and change other things in the matrix. So you basically shape the narrative as it progresses. The other thing is that with all of your choices, you can also shape, change the world around you. And that's, I think, a very unique feature of Dying Light 2, where your choices have genuine consequences on how the game looks and how it plays. Because it's not only about, for example, you, you, you decide that you want to help one of the factions take over a region of the city. And now in this region, you see uh, patrols of that faction and the buildings are painted blue. It's not like that. The thing is that um, with the choices you make, uh, you can change the whole dynamic of a region. So, for example, new groups of survivors can, can, can appear in that region and if you start interacting, talking with those groups, you realize that, give, that they give you quests, they give you missions that you will not be able to approach otherwise. And the other thing is that also your choices, when you shape the area around you, when you shape the region of the city, um, it also changes how you play that region. So, for example, um, what you can do is you can um, make sure during one of the quests that the water is flowing in the, in the region. And then... What that makes is that it activates fountains which you can use to heal yourself. So that's one of the one of the ways it changes how the game plays. But perhaps while doing this, you destroyed a nest of the infected. So now the infected they had to move somewhere else. So now you moved the the threat of zombies, threat of infected to another place. And now if you want to go to that place, it's harder for you during the night because there are plenty of, of infected there. So what we are trying to do is to create rules of this world that players will be able to discover and understand. And now when they when they will understand them, they will be able to play with those rules, try to create the, their, own, their, their, their own version of the city. 
And that's also another interesting thing about a game because now when you make those choices, you create, you shape the city as it is. You shape it, it's different regions. You shape what kind of opportunities it gives you. It shapes, uh, you shape how it looks. You shape who you encounter in that city. And now you start playing the game in Cobb and you join your friend's city, your friend's game, and they have a completely different city because it looks different. You encounter different people. There are different quests in their version of the city. So it, it works in two ways. First, you finish the game and you can get a look at like you can climb the highest building in the in the in the game and look at the city and see how did you change it? How did you impact it? It is your city basically. You feel like a king of this world because everything that happened is because of you to some extent. And then you can play call and go to your friend's game and reach the same building, the highest building in the game, look at the city, and it's a different city. And we, we realize that this is something very empowering to the players, the players and something that, that really makes them very connected to this game. And that what it also does is that it also uh, motivates you to play the game again. Because, okay, you did something. You, you shaped the city how you wanted or how, how it turned out to be. And then you realize, maybe I should have done something different. So now you start playing the game again to see other outcomes. Okay. So you mentioned the water. So um, from what I'm understanding, um, there's different factions, and I'm guessing like they're these different factions are located on different part of the maps, almost like yeah. kind of gangs in a way. Um, yes. Okay. So I guess they or they maybe they don't have their own part of of the map. They're just I guess scattered throughout. Is that how how the uh, factions are? Uh, well, so what they do is they have like I don't want to go to too mm-hmm. much. Into too, too many details, but the thing is that, of course, they have their presence. They have their bases. They have their patrols. Mm-hmm. They also have some people there that just live in the city wearing the insignia. And everything you do, sometimes you make choices between factions. Sometimes you make choices between faction and a common man. Sometimes you make choices com- like completely you think unrelated to the to the factions, but they influence and impact factions in some way. And um, you can shape this, and that's one of the ways of shaping the city. If you want, you can make a, a, you can for, you can um, make one faction dominant in the city. But that, it's not only about playing with factions because you can also skip interacting with factions altogether and just make some other choices and uh, so make some other decisions and perhaps uh, not make any of the factions stronger and create an outcome which suits only your character and only your 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 person and. Uh, Basically, the number then the number of options, the number of outcomes is 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 is, is very huge, and there are also details, small things that differ in, depending on what kind of choice you make. So, as I said, this is really a game you want to play over and over again to see everything that that has to offer, and you also want to play with other players online because they made different choices, and now you can get you get to witness what's the outcome of those choices. Okay, so. Um... I know you're the you know lead game um, designer, and uh, you know someone on the technical aspect will probably you know get more into this. But you know I feel like I gotta I gotta talk about this because I know it's something that um, me and everybody I know nobody nobody no gamer I know likes motion blur. Right? PC, you have the you know choice to turn it off for the most part. I don't remember if if 
you know, how it was on, on the console side of things with Dying Light. Um, but every, like I said, everybody I know hates motion blur. But I guess uh, it it is a like a necessary evil in, in some games. Um, but from what I read, you're kind of changing the way motion blur looks and, and works um, in, in Dying Light 2. So what, like we, of course, being aware of this, we don't want to overdo it. And uh, what we're doing is that we are using motion blur uh, very consciously and uh, mostly to uh, increase the immersiveness of parkour. So, so basically, only when you're doing, when you really reach that level of of of, of, of flow, let's say, you you witness this, this, uh, motion blur um, emphasized emphasized highly, let's say. Uh, but of course, if you want, you will be able to tweak those the settings of it as well. So, uh, um, I think it's a little too early to to answer this 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 question to the point. But uh, um, we are aware of the of the issue mentioned that we are like basically our tech guys and they listen to feedback like that, and we'll play as ways to customize this to their liking. Okay, because I think you know that'll just make a lot of people happy if they at least have the choice, you know, with, with the motion blur because. Uh-huh. Um, I also that just love it, so so mm-hmm. we also support them. Okay, yeah, because I played on PC, I could turn it off, but there's been other games where it has it, you know, that had motion blur, which I literally was unable to continue playing because the motion blur actually made me sick. So uh-huh. you know, that's why you know I just really had to you know ask that question. Um, any details you can give me about the multiplayer? Uh, aside from the fact that you will be able to play Dying Light 2 in co-op, uh, four-player co-op, nothing else. But there are surprises, multiplayer surprises coming in the future, so please stay tuned. Okay. Um, just, just a few more questions. Uh, what, what would you say is the biggest thing you learned um, from Dying Light 2, from, from Dying Light going into Dying Light 2, biggest thing you learned? Uh, I would I would mention three things. Um, first of all, we learned we we got a lot of expertise on working with first person melee combat and first person parkour, first person natural movement, and those are the things that uh, I think make us. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say specialist because you never are, uh, you never are a specialist, but uh, like we have experience in those two areas. So um, I think if anyone will try to create a game with first-person melee combat or with first-person parkour, they, should, can, they can just come to us and ask us about that stuff because we learned a lot of things, uh, sometimes uh, the hard way. And the third thing is that uh, I think Dying Light gave us confidence to believe in our vision because, uh, as you said, when we released the game, it wasn't as praised as we hoped, as we hoped for, but then the success of it, the eventual success of it, showed us that, you know, guys, Hey, Declan, you know what you're doing. Like, if you make another game, believe in your vision because this, this, like, you have great visions. You, 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 you know how to make games, and that the, the success of the first game is is something that gave us the confidence to believe in our vision. And that's why we are quite ambitious with the second game. And that's why we want to deliver again, a game that will be slightly different, that will be slightly unique, and um, that I hope will players will receive us as well as the first one. Okay. Um, release window year 2009? Next year, yeah. Okay, good. We at least got 2009. Um, 
season? I'm, I'm reaching season. No, see, no, I can't give me a. I had to try. I had to try. Um, but you but, know yeah. how it is. Like you, mm-hmm. you don't want to say too much because uh, video games are extremely complex beasts, and sometimes you like. I think it happened a lot of times in the in the past. Developers they they willing that like they want to share the excitement with fans, and they say, you know, guys, we'll be ready. Let's say in my 2018, and then they realize as I don't know February approaches or January approaches, they realize that they will not be able to to deliver uh, the game in May because because if they want to keep the quality. So as a game developer, you learn quite quite quickly that you don't want to promise too much, especially when it comes to dates, because video games can surprise you. Even if you work on on them, they can they can surprise. What kind of problems? What kind of challenges they bring? So we are targeting next year. We're not talking about seasons because that would be too, that would be committing to too much. Okay. Uh, someone in the chat actually wanted me to ask about this. The following, uh, dying like the following was was when you uh, introduced vehicles for the first time. Any plans for vehicles in two? Mm, we're not talking about vehicles in, uh, mm-hmm. yet. Okay. Okay. So I guess there's uh, that potential, but um. And I'm, I'm, I assume you planned the same way you supported Dying Light, you know, for, for years of content. You plan to do the same thing with two. Of course, there's a plan. How we will, there's a plan to support the game after the release. We have, we already know, even though there's still some time to release the core game. We already know what we want to do with the post-launch support, and we know when we will start working on this. And this will be quite soon because we want to be ready after the after the release of the game. Uh, but of course, this is something we want to keep for later, and this is something we will reveal as the actual release of the core game approaches. Okay. Um, and I know it's probably a difficult question. How interested would the would the studio be in um, in making a Switch version? Asking for the crowd. Uh, Switch version is not planned at this time, but we'll see. Like this is this is something we we, we have to uh, measure. This is something we have to uh, analyze how how achievable this is with our new engine as it stands right now. You have to understand that the new technology, the C engine, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, that's the first iteration of it. So um, and it's created to it has been created to uh, to support with a uh, really huge games, which with uh, great visual fidelity and um, and. Actually, if you look at Switch games, they not really. This is not something that makes Switch so so great console. It's not the, 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 that it gives you extremely big, huge worlds and extremely high fidelity graphics. What Switch gives you is great gameplay and uh, and then being able to to play with it on the mm-hmm. go and with your friends easily. So so we have to look at we have to, we have to look at the Switch version. We have to get some expertise into porting the game to, to to Switch. So this is not planned at this time because we are focusing on the on the on other platforms. But I'm not ruling this out for the future. Okay. Uh- What's the studio's stance? Because uh, it's you know very controversial, especially with, with with what happened in the past year. Studio stance on just microtransactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like this is something that I, I, personally I don't want to talk about this because mm-hmm. this is such a tricky subject, and whatever you say, people can 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 take What's it. Uh, of like what I can say is that 
we look at what's happening on the on the market and we are players as well so if it is, if it, if there's something we don't like as gamers it means we will not we will not put this in our game it's as simple as that okay um last question and cool. uh, i'm gonna let you go uh has to do with so the studio worked on uh you know dead island uh-huh. um so I, I don't know. I was just so amazed at the, I guess, the the change from Dead Island to to Dying Light, and I think a lot of people were, um, because some people you know didn't look at Di- uh, Dead Island as favorably, um, and then you made Dying Light, and it was like this: the caliber of this game is on a whole nother scale. Mm-hmm. It is. It is just like this is the same people, you know, and it's like so. What what was the um I guess the change from from Dead Island to Dying Light as far as like the the, the project and and how different it was and how uh you know in my opinion just better it was. Uh, so what what I can say is that you cannot come into game dev business and and create I don't know call the next Call of Duty as your first game. Mm-hmm. You have to get some expertise. You have to learn how to do those things, and you have to learn how to approach those things. And also, you have to understand that making games is a is a very expensive process, which requires a lot of resources. So, of course, you cannot start if you enter the game dev industry. You cannot start with a AAA game. You have to start smaller. You have to get that expertise. You have to get those resources. You have to create something that's successful that will allow you to create the next game, which is even more um, ambitious, which is bigger, which uh, uh, is more polished, which, which offers better quality. And that's what, that, that, that is what happened with Dead Island and Dying Light. Of course, with Dead Island, we wanted to create a game which was even better and even more polished and even, and even more um, uh, higher in quality of graphics and everything. But you cannot do those things if you have a team that's 50 people and you have this kind of budget. But then if you make a game as uh, as successful as the diet also, also was, uh, you get access to new resources. Now people want to work with you. Now you, you it's easier for you to create a thing which is 100 people and you have a bigger budget. So now you create a game with that. And if you spend those money right and if you use the, the ideas, the, the energy, the, creative, uh, the creativity of those people well, then you create a game which gives you even more resources and even allows you to create an even bigger budget. So I hope that Dying Light 2 will be a significant, significant, uh, as significant step step up for us as the as as the level up we did between Dead Island and Dying Light. Okay, Timon, uh, I just want to really thank you for your time. Appreciate the interview. Uh, I, I look forward to the game. Um, and yes. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to all the viewers that came out and watched. Uh, make sure you hit the like button to support and, uh, you know, follow uh, Techland. Um, Teeman is also on Twitter if you uh, want, want to give him a follow. And, yeah, we, we're all looking forward to the game. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye, guys. All right. Bye, everybody.